All right. Just giving you a heads up. Might feel like a fire hose today. So there's a lot. And like I said last week, if you're like, hey, I'd love to have the notes so I can at least know what you tried to talk about. Only one person took me up on it last week. And I sent it to her. So right now, I send out my notes 100% of the time <laughs> when asked. Just wanted you to know, um, I am now officially the chaplain of the Los Gatos Police Department. So here's a picture of me getting sworn in with like real people. I felt like, what am I doing here? How did I sneak in here? And I uh, got sworn in this week. And then I think there's another picture with me and Chief Jamie Fields. And so I'd love to have her at some point just talk to you guys just about town and this and that. Um, I was talking to somebody this, uh, I think just this, this morning. And I will tell you, I am not a person who tries to leverage my way into things. I don't have like, okay, how can I become the chaplain of law? That's, uh, God has this way with me where he's like, just be faithful. And then when I open another door, pray about it, talk to Lisa about it. But, um, and that's kind of what this was. And it was a blessing to be asked to be a part of the police department. The also joyful thing is I'm partnering with my friend Dave, who's the pastor at First Press across the street here. I've known him a long time. He, it takes two of us now to handle what the former chaplain did, this guy named Russ Ikeda, who did it for 20 years. And so we're going to partner together and do this really well together because that's one of my hearts too, is to partner with other pastors and churches. So I just wanted you to know that. Um, one of the things I get to do is sit in on briefings. So if your name comes up, I will know. <laughs> just letting you know. They kind of just talk about everybody and everything. So, like, if Alex, if your name comes up, bro, I'm just, you know, just kidding you. Yeah. And then, um, yeah, if you see me in the police car, if I'm in the front seat, I'm doing my work. If I'm in the back seat, not doing my work so well. Just wanted you to know, when you think about it, I, I would encourage you to pray for me as I uh, get to be a part of these kinds of things. All right. If you have a Bible, you can turn to, man, we've got a lot of stuff. Genesis 50, if you want, Exodus 34, Deuteronomy 24, and a lot more. It'll be on the screen. I'd just like to give a heads up that we are going to talk about the Bible today, in case you are wondering. Here is, uh, we've been going through this series on emotional healthy relationships. This is week three. If you've missed week one and two, I strongly, strongly, strongly encourage you to go on our website and listen to that because it becomes something that unfolds over some time. And it's an introduction of things that we're not going to leave once we're done, but it becomes kind of a thing we have on tape and on film to be able to continue to have in our church. The thesis of this comes from Pete Scazzaro's book on emotional healthy spirituality, where he writes this, emotional health and spiritual maturity are inseparable. It's not possible for a Christian to be spiritually mature while remaining emotionally immature. Couple things today. The first part, I'm going to try and teach and challenge you with some things that may bring up some things that you've kept away for a long time. The great news in part two is that we have the gospel and what God wants to do with part one. 
So if part one is making you like, oh, there's a lot of stuff here. What is this really talking about? The gospel is coming. So it's kind of a Good Friday, Easter kind of combo, right? With Pentecost on the way. So if you're feeling like, huh, the gospel is coming, but it's all fit together. Let me pray for us. God, help us, help me. Where my words fall short, Spirit, may you work. Even if we dive into some things that some of us, some including me, have put away for a long time, may we see it as an opportunity for you, Spirit, to reach the deepest places of our life and transform us from the roots, from the inside out. In your name, amen. After hearing uh, time to time of uh, maybe a friend in ministry or a leader or like a nationally known ministry leader, kind of crash and burn, right, morally and uh, things that maybe have come up to the surface, things that have caused them, they've kind of hid away and they've gotten to a point where maybe their role was out, was bigger than their integrity or their character and things caught up. It's hard and it's hurtful, but I would start to say, oh, man, nothing surprises me anymore. But I use that just as a storyline to kind of kept keep things down. Like, well, man, this world is terrible. And I know a lot of people over my years of ministry who can be a part of church for a long time. Maybe hear hundreds and th or thousands of sermons. And maybe they've served in many, many places in the church and they've even led other people to know God. But inwardly, they're still kind of miserable and cranky and cynical. Why? How can you be surrounded by the truth of Jesus for so long and it only gets so deep? Hopefully, this series answers some of those questions. Because what I came to realize is what I shared last week is that we apply often biblical truth with the relational skills we've acquired from others along the way or simply passed down to us. So we take this truth, the things we learn, but we enact it in such a way, in a human way, of just the things we already knew or maybe the things that were passed down to us from our families versus that also transforming how we relate. For a few moments this morning, I want to look at what I believe is the most powerful, influential places where these relational skills have come from. And that's from your family, from the people that have been around you. But not just the current generation, but the one before you and the one before them. And maybe even the one before them. You see, the concept is this, is that we need to go back in order to go forward. Now I know, because I've even heard from some in this room, I don't want to go back. Aren't we told to forget the past? God has made me new. Amen. And please hang in there with me. The, the idea is this. It's basically a summary of two biblical truths. The first one is this is that the blessing and sins of our families going back two, three, maybe four generations can profoundly impact who we are today. And discipleship requires putting off old sinful patterns 
of our family of origin and relearning how to do God's, how to do life God's way and in God's family. Just so you know the journey today. One, I will start with a biblical example. Two, I will try and explain what I'm not saying. Three, I will then try to explain what I am saying. Four, this is for those of you like, where are we going? Four, there's a great news of the gospel. Five, how about you? Okay, we got it? Start with the biblical example. Then I'm going to explain what I'm not saying. Then I'm going to try to explain what I am saying. Gospel, you. Here we go. The Bible uses the word family when it refers to family. It refers to our entire extended family. It means that your family in a biblical sense includes all of your brothers, your sisters, your uncles, your aunts, your grandparents, and your great-grandparents, your great-uncles and your aunts, and significant others. So today, this would be going back to the 1800s. That's how when the Bible says your family or your generation, it's referring back that far. It's not just talking about you in your certain context. For this reason, it's often to commonly observe things get passed down or patterns go from generation to generation. Things such as divorce and alcoholism, addictive behavior, sexual abuse, poor marriages, children becoming estranged. We see these things patterns. At the same time, you can also see blessings come down through generations if they're continued on of how to love and how to respect and how to enjoy. It's more than when things happen, oh, this is just a broken world. There's a part about family patterns as well. Let's look at what I would say is a significant family in Scripture. It's kind of the patriarchal, the patriarchs at the very beginning. If you don't know this story, please read Genesis 12 through 50. It's the story of Abraham and his descendants. But let's start with a man named Joseph. Abraham was his great-grandfather. But there's a man named Joseph, a man sold into slavery by his brothers, falsely accused by the governor's wife of sexual assault. He's forgotten in prison. But he finds himself all of a sudden in the second command of all of Egypt, the most powerful place on the earth. And he's facing his brothers who actually had sold him into slavery, who had lied about him, but he had been transformed by God. Let's go back a little further and see how we got here. Like I said, Abraham is Joseph's great-grandfather. And Abraham was chosen by God to leave his family, his family of origin, to begin a new life in the new promised land. And God says... I'm going to bless you to have a new family, right? The family of God, which would be the children of Israel. And even though he was chosen to leave, it, starts, it started with a beautiful act of obedience. It gets a bit ugly. There are threads and patterns passed down through generations that followed. Here is Joseph's family tree to follow along a little bit. In the story of, the fa- of this family, we see a significant pattern of lying. 
Abraham starts about lying about Sarah because he was so afraid that because she was so beautiful that they were going into enemy territory that he would be killed so the king could have his wife for his own. So he said, just tell them you're my half-sister. How would you like to be on the receiving end of your husband saying, we're not married, you're just my half-sister, like, to get out of trouble? He didn't just, just, he did it again. There's this thought process being modeled before them of like, the way you get out of a tough space is not to trust God's promise and covenant that he's going to be a great family, but to spin it into lie. His son Isaac, his wife Rebecca, lies to get what each other wanted all throughout their marriage. They go to their son Jacob. Jacob lied to almost everyone. Lie after lie after lie. His name actually means deceiver. Which is a little scary because my daughter married a guy named Jacob. And I'm wondering how many times he's deceived me. Then Jacob's sons lie about their brother Joseph's death. They faked it. They faked a funeral and kept a family secret for more than 10 years. They watched their father mourn, deeply cry over an event that did not happen and they let it happen. Because lying becomes so ingrained in their bones from the generations before, it was just what you did. Other patterns that we see in these generations that brothers were cut off from each other in every single generation. Isaac and Ishmael were cut off from each other. Jacob fled from his twin brother Esau and were cut off from each other for years. Joseph was cut off from his brothers for 10 years. It became a family norm to be cut off from your siblings. There was incredible poor intimacy in each one of these marriages that gets passed down. Abraham had a child out of wedlock with Hagar. Isaac had a terrible relationship with Rebekah. Jacob, this was his family, had two wives, multiple concubines, and 12 kids all living together in a tent. Or tents. A mess. And then out of this lineage, Joseph emerges out of this trauma, this brokenness, and these patterns. How did that happen? For you, your family and extended family is the most powerful influence relationships of who you are. The things you've learned or modeled been passed down, it's in your bones. And sometimes it doesn't come out until these pressure moments. Notice this example as well. We'll see this in Exodus a little bit later. Abraham's descendants are now being freed from Egypt as slaves. There's this moment where Moses has been up with God for a long time. And the children of Israel are like, he's left us. Where is he? Even though God was transitioning them from being a community of slaves to a community of priests, Egypt was still in their bones. It's what they knew. Even though they'd seen these miracles of crossing the Red Sea and they've seen these miracles of a fire in the sky and a cloud and all the plagues, they'd seen all these transformational things. What was still in their bones was Egypt. So something happens when Moses had been gone for a long time. Something triggers them. So they go to Aaron and say, we need to build an idol. 
because that's what they knew. So they built this golden calf and they start dancing around it because they're like, we've been abandoned in the desert. And we see in Exodus 32 through 34, which I encourage you to read, is that God was incredibly angry with the people to the point where he's like, I'm just going to start over. But Moses, being an ancient model of who Jesus was, intercedes. He's like, no, these people aren't so bad. God, God engages with them. But when Moses goes down the mountain carrying these commandments, he sees his people dancing around this idol because it, that's what was deep in their bones. And Moses slams down the, the commandments. They crumble. And there's this brokenness. But he goes back up to God, intercedes and prays. He confronts the people. He didn't just say, oh, I know this was a hard day. I know you missed me. It's okay if you dabbled in a little bit of idolatry for a while. I get it. No, there was confrontation. He goes back up to God and we see this interaction. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger. Abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He says this interesting phrase. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of their parents to the third and fourth generation. Okay. Here's where we get to the part. What I am not saying. What I am not saying is that God puts a generational curse on your family for three or four generations. Praise be to God. I'm also not saying God will punish you for something your grandpa did. Here's some scriptural support. Deuteronomy 24. Parents are not to be put to death for their children. Some of your parents are like, oh, thank God. Nor children put to death for their parents. Each will die for their own sin. Ezekiel 18, the one who does, the one who sins is the one who will die. The child will not share the guilt of the parent, nor will the parent share the guilt of the child. The righteousness of the righteous will be credited to them, and the wickedness of the wicked will be charged against them. So what do we do with these words from God about the generations? Like it's there. This part in Exodus when laid atop of what happened in Genesis, starts to give us some understanding of what's actually happening. Here's what I am saying. Each generation's failures makes the next generation's environment in which they grow up in even more difficult to be faithful to God. And because of that, it's like a compounding interest of sin and destructive family habits that keep accumulating over the generations. Hope is coming. Don't worry. Pete Scazzaro makes this comment. Unfortunately, it's not possible to erase the negative effects of our history. The fa this family history lives inside of all of us, especially in those who, will, who attempt to bury it. The price we pay for this fight, flight is high. And only the truth will set us free. 
I have permission from my daughter who's not here today. She's doing a ministry trip in Houston to share this. My heart was that we could share this part together. Maybe someday we will, so I'll kind of be general. This isn't just about looking back at your past to see what's been passed down to you. It's also about looking forward to see what you're passing on to the next generation and see if you can catch it and tweak it. Lisa and I often would look at Anna and embrace like different things about her. When she came home with like super good grades, Lisa would go, that's obviously from my side of the family. <laughs> when she was playing soccer and would trip and fall with nothing happening around her, I would say that is also from your side of the family. <laughs> when she would scream and be overexcited and, and yell and be things, Lisa would say that's from your side of the family. That kind of thing. We loved it. We watched it growing up. There was this night sitting at the kitchen table or counter where Anna had this response to being corrected or taught or learning new things. And she had this thing in her that she pushed it away. In that moment, the Holy Spirit said, Dale, that's you. You passed that on to her. And I wept. And I looked at my daughter and I said, I... I'm so sorry. You got that from me. I don't know how you got that from me. I've been trying to hide it. And Lisa, being my wife, she goes, you haven't hid it very well. <laughs> and I said, babe, that is a journey that your dad started to get a hold of maybe when he got close to 40. If you can catch it now in your early 20s, God will do great things in it. I am so sorry. We wept. Anna said, Dad, it's not your fault. I said, oh, it is. She goes, Dad, this is your fault. I said, yeah, it is. <laughs> and we healed. Part of understanding generations, my friends, isn't just looking back. It's looking forward and not feeling this. The enemy wants to shame you and guilt you. See it as opportunity just to be open and honest, but it takes absolute transparency. There's this quote from Kath Wingerton, who is a professor at Harvard, and she does a lot of things around generational trauma. Let me just read this quote to you. It says this, what is passed from previous generations is not, sorry, I'm not sorry. I'm just trying to hold it together, is not the trauma itself, but its impact. Silence is the key mechanism by which trauma in one generation is communicated to the next. We are accustomed to think of silence as an absence of sound, but here it is. But it functions in families in much more complex and confusing ways. Silence can communicate a wealth of things. It's its own map. Don't go there. Don't say that. Don't touch. Too much. Too little. This hurts. This doesn't. Silence co-occurs with numbers of other phenomena. Shame. A painful effect in which one feels exposed, fundamentally deficient in some vital way as a human being is one of them. The trauma doesn't pass on. The effects of it can so, even as followers of Jesus, we bring patterns and thoughts and influences of family even into how we read the Bible. 
How we see God, we bring these things in. How we relate to each other, we bring these things in. And there is great news. The gospel is transforming, life-giving, and renewing. Come on. Amen, hallelujah, something. Some of you are like, yeah, I know the answer. Like, Let me tell you when you say amen, when you've actually felt the pain of this. Because I have felt the pain of this and I've allowed myself to feel it. And then when I get into the gospel, I go, oh, hallelujah, there's something. I don't just need to repeat the patterns that have been passed on to me. And my dad's watching today on YouTube. Hey, dad, I love you. Just wanted to say that because he'll smile. Because when you come to Jesus, you're actually now reborn into a new family. God's family. This fact becomes very early in John's gospel. And I got to get moving here. He cites this. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. Children born not out of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. That is good news. I am not saying like, oh my gosh, I, I love my family. I don't want to. You're not being invited to leave your family. You're invited to have God inform your family. Jesus teaches this in a fascinating way. He's just been accused by the Pharisees to have a devil, the demon inside of him. His family's pressuring him. They're like, what are you? Jesus responds. Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived, standing outside. They sent someone in to call him. There's a group of people around him. A crowd was sitting around him, and they told him, your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. Jesus, this isn't just an existential thing, but it kind of sounds like it. Who are my mother and my brothers? He asked. Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. This isn't Jesus disrespecting his mom. He's like, ah, mom, I have nothing to do with you. We know that Jesus loved his mom. Even as he's dying on the cross, he's looking down at her, looking at his friend John. He's like, John, will you take care of my mother? He loved her. This was about a clear explanation that family of God, that Jesus came to be, isn't just your blood family. It's now you're in my family. And whoever follows me and does my will is in my family. He's opened the doors to the family. You are all part of me now. I and you and you and me. But in this family, you're first a follower of Jesus. And this is where it gets really confusing when we bring the things we know into this because we need to be followers of Jesus first when we mix up that order it's idolatry it's the same as the Israelites dancing around a calf if in our bones it says our country then Jesus it's idolatry if we say it's our ethnicity then Jesus it's idolatry if it's church tradition, then Jesus, it's idolatry. If it's family traditions over Jesus, it's idolatry. You see, discipleship requires putting off the old sinful patterns of our family of origin and relearning how to do life God's way in God's family. 
here is something practical, hopefully. We can only change, I believe, what you are actually aware of. I could only change what I was aware of. Here are some practical questions. One, how did your family process conflict? Was it within the Jesus way or the own way? Was it avoid conflict at all costs, don't get people mad at you, stay below the radar, or it's loud, angry, constant fighting as normal? What was it? Put that under Jesus. How did your family do sadness and grief? Sadness and grief, was it a sign of weakness? Or you're not allowed to be depressed? Or get over losses quickly, look for the good right away and how God's going to use it? How did your family talk about money? Money is the best source of security. Is it the more money you have, the more important you are? Or just say you don't have any money for that to keep your kids quiet. How did your family talk about family? Was it you owe your parents for all they've done for you? Or don't speak of your family's dirty laundry in public? Or due to the family and culture, duty to family and culture becomes before everything. You see, all of these things are deeply attached to your bones. Discipleships helped release those things from your bones and putting Jesus first. One of the reasons we look back is simply to say what idolatry might be in my life. From the book Relational Soul, the authors write this. Our story is composed of three things. Events emotions surrounding the events we experience and the interpretation, which means what we think we learn from the events and emotions of our lives. Events and emotions don't become a story without an interpretation. And it's our interpretation is the script of the life. I think that's what it is. My interpretation of my story. What is my interpretation? You see, change only really began to happen in me when I did this. I needed to change or challenge my interpretation. How? With somebody I trusted. I repented of the things that I identified I continued to carry in my life. It wasn't like these sins, but there were certain things of patterns that I continued to do. I would say things like, well, nobody's perfect. And this goal wasn't to be perfect. It was just to be more like my Jesus. Secondly, I told my story out loud so at least I could understand my story. And we can do this in so many ways. And this is what Joy referenced. There's a thing called the genogram or genogram. It actually kind of helps your process of understanding what has happened before you. What have been the patterns? We'll send out some links today at 5 o'clock. Some videos and this and some links around that. And then I processed with someone who loves me. You see, that's the thing. We process with people who love us. Who believe in us. That we can share some things and it doesn't shake them. The key for me is I allowed God to interpret my story. My friends, this is possible. Paul wrote, nothing in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. A 
again from the relational soul. I want you to hear this. Our lives are held in love forever by the Lord of heaven and earth. Here is where our journey of transformation begins, transpires, and ends. Old habits die hard, but God's love endures forever. Grumpy, crabby, and cantankerous attitudes are not easily shaken, but God's love endures forever. Anxiety, fear, guilt, and shame hang on us like a sweaty t-shirt on a hot and humid day. But God's love endures forever. Lingering memories of abuse, brokenness, and even hatred haunt the soul. But God's love endures forever. We rest in God's love and in his love we are transformed. We live bearing the beams of God's love. Change is anchored in his love. And so too are the soulful relationships that all true transformation serves. Do you hear it? This isn't just something to know. This is something to invite deep into the things that are attached to your bones. Back to Joseph. We're not told how, but somehow this man Influenced by generations of lying, favoritism, brokenness with siblings and spouses. Personally sold into slavery by his own brothers. Falsely accused of, despite a God-honoring action was in prison. He interpreted dreams with God's help of some of the people in prison. He said, don't forget me, remember me. They left and they forgot him in prison. Famine hits. He's finally remembered for the wisdom and godly insight. He didn't try to escape, but God said, now is your time, Joseph. His brothers show up before him begging for food because there was none. This is all set up for a beautiful moment of revenge, isn't it? You're like, well, what's a beautiful moment of revenge? Sometimes we like revenge movies. Like, ah, oh, he got him at the end. He got what he deserved, right? He got the slam. Like, oh. God's not about that. So Joseph mourned. It says he wept. He had to take a moment. He saw his brothers. He left and he cried. And he mourned and he wept. You see, he grieved the painful time. But he's not triggered at all by his family of origin stuff. And after a series of events where he sets them up and tries to see if they've really changed, because he wants to see if they're safe people, he doesn't instantly invite them back into the life. There's something about making sure they're safe once again. And you can read that in Genesis. But yet after these series of events, he says this. But Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. He brings them all back in. Why? Because God reinterpreted Joseph's story. He said, what they meant for harm, I'm meeting for good. 
My friends, this is possible for you. And you're like, man, I've my, you, you're different spaces in your own life. You're like, man, I've lived my life. It's still possible for you to let go of some things. This isn't just about looking back. I would encourage you now and look forward and see if the patterns are continuing and try to be that voice of repentance, breaking some chains. Maybe there's some things that have happened to you that were not your fault at all. This is possible. Things that were under the surface. God can do this for you. Deep transformation happens. Two things I've learned, and they help me not to shut down. If you're wondering what I'm talking about, I've been through a bit of a journey in my own life. I've been sexually abused as a little kid. The pastor of the church said, it's okay, let's just forgive the man and nothing to be said. Nothing was ever said to me. No one advocated for me. When I went to therapy, I was told to tell nobody else because it was shameful to have somebody in therapy. As a 29-year-old, I got a message that I was to report to court because to, he had done it again. Because I had shut it down, I never told Lisa. So we were married seven years, and I told her that. It was hard. I've gone through some things. I get called with a doctor, says I have multiple sclerosis. I've been through some things. So here's what I've learned. Those very things in my life, I've been able to get an edge. I've been able to be strong. I've used those things to be faithful, to not give in. I have the ability to stare down tough situations, unlike a lot of people, and just go, you ain't no big deal. I've used those things to actually do better myself, to get to a place where I am. I'm not ashamed of that. And so I say, yes, thank you, Lord, for making me strong. The second thing I've learned is there comes a time for even those things that got me where I am today need to be let go. They need to be let go. Because what God has used to get me here will not get me any further. So I let him go. I do. It's God alone now. It's Jesus alone now. The other day I was sitting at a Los Gatos baseball game, just enjoying the sunshine, talking to kids who I coach and this and that. And I was sitting there and I said, God, I love my life right now. Because it's not about the abuse. It's not about the MS. It's not about the hardships I went through here. It's just about being present with you. It's I have more to do than I've ever managed. I didn't need one more thing to do by being sworn as, as the chaplain. See, I have to change my email. Pastor, coach, chaplain, <laughs> blah, 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 gut. I mean, it's getting too long, but it's, I love my life. Why? Because I'm not hanging on to things. I'm just letting Jesus go. That's what I invite you into. There are things that get you to a certain place that make you who you are. You think it's time to let those go and let Jesus I invite the worship team out. Let's pray. Father, I don't know what this might be bringing up for people in their own hearts and minds. I do not intend to bring up shame. I intend to help find freedom. That we can look at these things and say no more. God, if we're bringing things of our patterns of our lives into our relationship with you, 
and we're like, I want a little Jesus, but I'm going to hang on to this. It's idolatry. May we reverse it. God, I pray you do the amazing work that you only can do through the work of your spirit. God, thank you for freeing me, continuing to free me, even though deep in my bones is still some stuff. I remember last night, repenting to Lisa some things and I just asked for help to continually let go of this stuff. We love you, Jesus. I pray for my family and friends here. Maybe some have never come to know you. They've never opened their heart to you. I pray today they just would say, Jesus, I invite you into my life. I want to be a part of your family. Forgive me of my sins. I want to follow you in the days of my life. I pray that we would put ourselves under that, that you hold this together, that we don't bring the things to you, but you bring yourself to us. We love you. Like I said, I know today was going to be a lot. I know it was a little longer. I apologize for those who are late to your 1020 reservation at the restaurant. But I'm not apologetic because when we gather, we do try to do it authentically and right. So thanks for being here together. God bless you. After services, I often sit over here because my legs get tired. But if you want to come by and chat, pray, happy to do that with you. So that's what I do. God bless you. Have a great, great week.